Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. And welcome to our 37th episode, which is our third in our series on the Haudenosaunee in the Revolutionary War. Now, where did we leave off last week, Andrew? Last time, we discussed how the Six Nations were being pulled in a lot of different directions. Men like Gaia and the Council of the Fifty Sachems wanted to stay out of this conflict and remain neutral. But once again, battle lines are being drawn, people are being forced to choose sides, and we are going to see this battlefield look eerily similar to the French and Indian War. In fact, we are going to start off the Northern Campaign and the Revolutionary War in the exact same spots as the French and Indian War, and in particular, Fort Ticonderoga on the south end of Lake Champlain. This fort and this lake have been in our podcast from day one. Several episodes back when we were in the French and Indian War, we talked about Fort Carillon. Fort Ticonderoga is in the exact same spot. It's just been beefed up for the next generation of fights. But we can go all the way back to the 1600s. And if you remember our episode on Samuel D. Champlain, at one point he gets convinced by his Algonquian allies to canoe down to Mohawk territory. And at one point, he opens up his uh, rifle and he shoots several Mohawk chiefs dead on the spot. And this is in the exact same spot of this fort. It's just amazing how over hundreds of years, we just keep coming back to this same spot. So let's talk about Fort Ticonderoga. Now, the name actually means between two hills. Is it between two hills? It is. Uh, Like we said, it's at the south end of Lake Champlain. And you literally, on the left have the Iroquois Mountains, and on the right you have Green Mountains Green of Mountains of Vermont. So this is right on the border of modern-day New York and Vermont. It's really interesting, Caleb. So for generations before Europeans came along, you had the Mohawk and the Haudenosaunee fighting against the Huron and the Algonquins, and then you had the British and the French, and now we're coming into a new phase where we have Americans versus British fighting over this little point of land. Now, Andrew, who actually has Ticonderoga at this point? Well, it depends what year you're asking. <laughs> well, you would naturally think that the British have this at this point because uh, the Redcoats are the ones that are actually holding down all these forts. Even though it takes place in America, the revolution is just kicking off. So the British actually have all of their people in these forts. Uh, but meanwhile, down in Boston, George Washington is trying to take Boston back after it's been captured. And we don't have time to get into that in this show. Maybe in the future we can come back and talk about that in another podcast. George Washington really needs cannons to take back Boston, so he sends Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys of Vermont on a secret mission to head up to Ticonderoga and take it while it's understaffed by the British. They only have 100 men holding down this fort, and Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold sneak in in a surprise dawn attack on May 10th, 1775. And they have amazing luck because the entire British garrison is asleep. They walk right up. Benedict Arnold is is quoted uh, telling the leader of the British to come out, you dirty rat. And he comes out and he surrenders the fort. So not only is the fort now in the Patriots' hands, but they've just captured 60 cannons. 60? 60 cannons. What the heck do they need 60 cannons for in the middle of nowhere? So they get these cannons and they ship them back down to Boston for George Washington, who ends up using them to break the siege and take back Boston. 
Now, in July of 1776, a small group of warships commanded by Benedict Arnold float up Lake Champlain, and they have their own little sea battle on Lake Champlain, which it's just got so... I wish that I could have been there on one of these hills to see it. This is an Adirondack lake in the middle of the wilderness covered by mountains, and you have these mini sloops and corvettes going around and shooting cannons at each other in this small lake. Andrew was telling me that this was actually just Benedict Arnold basically trying to slow the British advance. So even though they were beaten, they didn't look at it like it was this huge moral defeat because they were just trying to slow them back. So they looked at it like, okay, mission successful. Let's get out of here before we all get killed. And it did work because the British had to put off their campaign to Ticonderoga for a year. But there was one problem with that, and that was several of these warships of the Patriots were captured and taken back up to the north end of Lake Champlain, which is going to come back to haunt them. Now, Andrew, let's talk about Burgoyne. We mentioned him briefly in our last episode. He is the general that is going to be running the northern campaign for the British in North America. Now, his army had arrived in Quebec in 1776. And in addition to just having redcoats there, he actually had several regiments of Germans under the command of Baron Frederick Adolf Riedseel. 900 men were assigned to his junior general, St. Ledger. The plan was to send him to the Mohawk Valley. Basically, Burgoyne's strategy here is they're going to have a three-pronged attack. Burgoyne's going to travel south from Quebec, across Lake Champlain, take Fort Ticonderoga, and then march down from Lake George and capture Albany from the north. And St. Ledger is going to come down from Lake Ontario, land at Oswego, travel up to Fort Stanwix, and then come through the Mohawk Valley, hook up with Burgoyne, and take Albany. And then from New York City, another force of British people are supposed to, air quotes, travel up the Hudson Valley and attack Albany from the south, thereby totally capturing all of New York. That sounds like a great plan to me, Andrew. Problem is, things are sometimes a little harder than the plan on paper. Yeah, like literally they looked at a map and they did not realize that there was like huge terrain logistical issues with no roads. And not just uh, the roads issue, but they were expecting to have 2,000 Canadian militia raised in Quebec. Uh, But by June of the following year, they'd only raised about 400 men who didn't have enough supplies and weren't well trained. And it got worse because Burgoyne had also expected to have 1,000 Indian warriors, but he winds up with less than 500. Burgoyne's army, on top of not having enough men, this campaign is going to start off really slow. And that's because they have trouble even leaving Quebec. And they're having trouble because Burgoyne had not planned on needing so many wagons. Like Andrew said, they looked at the map and they thought that they were just going to be able to go down these rivers and lakes the whole way. But if you know anything about the rivers and lakes in the Adirondacks, they have rapids, they have stones sticking up out of them. They can be very shallow in other places. Sometimes the lakes are connected in spring and then there's nothing but a teeny little ditch connecting them, a little creek, the rest of the year. So there's just no way that they're going to be able to transport these troops. And they don't have nearly enough wagons to move his 8,000-man army with all of their supplies. So he steps up and he orders wagons to be built. Now, there's one problem with that, and that's wagons need to be built just like uh, barrels. They need to be built out of seasoned wood. 
Uh, it needs to be dried for sometimes several years indoors out of moisture, and then you can bake it into what you need to. So they start just cutting down trees and using green wood to make wheels. And as soon as they dry out, they just explode. And all of the supplies spill all over the road. And on top of that, he doesn't have enough horses, so he starts pressing horse owners to drive these green carriages that are blowing up everywhere, but these people aren't really paid, so every chance they get, they're just deserting and disappearing into the woods. And yet Burgoyne was a huge optimist. He thought that this mission was pretty much just a walk in the park because he had overwhelming British forces, and he thought that there's really nothing to stop them from just marching into Albany. And what's making it kind of worse is he'd been bragging to a lot of the people in the social circles on, you know, it kind of sounds like things Braddock said, too. You know, we're going to walk in there, we'll capture this in a couple months, be home in time for cornflakes. It's almost worse, though, Caleb, because back in England, they kind of had a nickname for this guy. They called him Gentleman Johnny, because he always played the stereotypical posh British officer. On this expedition, he's going to have all the comforts of home. You know, the fine china being brought along and, you know, the footstool and just everything you can think of to keep himself warm. On June 13th, 1777, Burgoyne is going to look over all of his assembled forces on the Richelieu River, just north of Lake Champlain. He has five sailing ships that they had been building since the year before, and they had six that they had captured at the Battle of Valcour Island, that battle we mentioned with Benedict Arnold, who at this time is still an American hero. So keep that in your mind. He's still a cool guy at this point. So these provided the military transport to sail down to the south end of the lake where they want to take Fort Ticonderoga. When they launched, they had 7,000 regulars and over 130 pieces of cannon, ranging from light mortars all the way up to 24-pound cannons, which are the huge ones. That's not a cannon that weighs 24 pounds. That's a 24-pound cannonball. Yeah, to give you an idea, a 24-pound cannonball is like the size of your head. That's a big cannonball. He has his regular troops, Andrew, and they start out marching in good order, but not everybody is in good order. You see, a lot of his troops are German dragoons. And what can you tell me about German dragoons in one sentence, Andrew? Don't they ride on horseback? Yes, they are a, a somewhat elite crack German unit that is mounted on horses. But there is one problem with this group of German dragoons, and that's that they were shipped over from Europe without horses. They have their saddles, they have their huge cavalry sabers, but they have no horses. Well, a lot of good it would do them going to the Adirondacks full of lakes and mountains. Well, they had thought that they were going to find horses and buy them or capture them, and then they'd have horses to ride. But you're right. There's nothing more useless than a cavalry uh, soldier riding through the Adirondacks. But they are marching through the woods and pack, taking up all this space on these ships with their saddles. They brought the saddles? They brought the saddles because they're still hoping that at some point they're going to find horses. But I guess I can't blame them because they don't know the terrain that they're walking into. Yes, but you know, on top of that, they're just not properly equipped for wilderness fighting. On Saturday 21st, June 1777, General Burgoyne talks to his 400 Indians. And Burgoyne was kind of, uh, in addition to being called Gentleman Johnny, he was a man of the theater too, wasn't he, Caleb? He was, and he actually was a well-known theater writer and lover and performer. Oh, boy. And he addresses the Indians as if he's performing 
on the stage to his adoring fans and he steps up and he says in these beautiful flowing words, Warriors, go forth in the might of your valor and your cause. Strike at the common enemies of Great Britain and America, the disturbers of public order, peace, and happiness, the destroyers of commerce, parasites of the state. And was it a good rousing speech? Well, apparently it was because the 400 Indian warriors began screaming their war cry and waving their muskets and tomahawks in the air. I can just picture them there like, uh, so what do we do now? And the chiefs say, why don't you guys act like uh, it was a great speech? Oh, yeah, great speech. Uh, thank you so much. Now, once the speech was finished, all the chiefs came up to talk to Burgoyne personally, to give them their thoughts and their advice. And one of them was named, listen, ready for this name, Andrew? His yeah. name was Old Chief. Was he old? I don't know. Wouldn't it be funny if he was young and his just, yeah, it was just his name, Young Chief? But he's quoted saying, our hatchets have been sharpened in our affection. These Indians aren't just going to slink away. They are actually excited to go and fight because they think that it has been uh, the American patriots that have been causing all their problems. So they're ready to fight for Britain because, like we said in our last episode, they're kind of being promised a lot of land. Basically, all of Quebec, their thinking is going to be theirs again. So Burgoyne's first step is to travel down the lake and they occupy the old undefended Fort Crown Point on June 30th. These 400 Indians end up becoming very useful because they're able to screen the woods and basically scout ahead, find out where the Patriots are so that they can make sure that they keep their men safe. Now, how are the Americans feeling about this British force coming down the lake? Now, Andrew, they've kind of been expecting it at some point. But at this particular moment, they are completely unaware because these 400 Indians are coning the woods and keeping in camouflage and sneaking up. There's no sign that the that Burgoyne's army is actually only several miles away. St. Clair, the general in charge of Fort Ticonderoga, was ordered by General Schuyler to hold out as long as possible when the British did finally attack. So how long do they hold out? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Skirmishes begin at the outer defenses at Ticonderoga on July 2nd. And by the 4th of July, most of the Americans garrisoned had fallen back to the forts. They didn't want to stay out in the woods and have picket lines. And that's what you should always do, but it takes really disciplined soldiers to stay out in the open and, and form these picket lines to keep people back. So they all fall back to the forts. On top of Ticonderoga, there was a smaller fort on uh, Mount Independence, which was the hill just to the west. And as soon as Burgoyne arrived, he notices this large hill on the east side of the lake. Let's rewind a year or two back. This hill, it was called Sugarloaf Hill. What? Who named that? Yeah, that was, a, that was what it was called. That would be an awesome band name. Sugarloaf Hill? Yeah. It's known now by the more patriotic name Mount Defiance. Lame. Several years earlier, some engineers had told uh, the fort's commanders, hey, uh, you should probably uh, build a fort up there, put some bastions up there, because uh, it'd be pretty easy probably for enemy forces to get cannons up there and shoot down and blow this fort to smithereens. Uh, and there actually were some letters down to George Washington, and they said, hey, could we have some more men for uh, this Sugarloaf Hill up here? 
And nothing ever came of it. They didn't have the money. And everybody just thought, eh, that's a really steep mountain. Nobody's going to get up there. And if they do, it's going to take a long time. Okay, blah, 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 blah. Let's go back to modern time. Burgoyne is looking at this hill, and he just naturally assumes that there's a whole fort up there. And he thinks to himself, if only we could take this hill, we could take this whole fort without even a fight. They'd be forced to retreat. So Burgoyne sends some of his scouts up the hill, and when they come back, he cannot believe the news. There is not one man stationed on this entire hill overlooking Fort Ticonderoga. And it was pretty steep. That very night, Burgoyne has his navy men start rigging cannons and dragging them up to the top of the hill. They work all night, Andrew, and by dawn, they have cannons in place looking down at Fort Ticonderoga. Now, Andrew, Burgoyne had a friend with him. His name was William Phillips, and he was the artillery general. And he has a great quote from, uh, I imagine he came up with it after this circumstance. He says, Where a goat can go, so can a man. And where a man can go, he can drag a gun. Whew. So what did St. Clair do in the morning when he looked up and well, saw Well, he these... got out of bed, he had a good stretch, he opened up the windows, and he looked up to the top of Sugarloaf Hill, and there were all the cannons pointing down on him, and he pissed himself. Probably not. Well, l- we l- don't l- actually have it in the history books that he pissed himself, but that's just what I'm picturing. St. Clair instantly realizes that they're hosed and they need to retreat. The problem is if they just start packing everything up and retreating, the British are going to wait for them to get half of their army through the back gate. They're going to send everybody in, and it's going to turn into a rout. So let's give St. Clair some credit here because he keeps a cool head. I imagine he has like that one-minute panic attack. He goes in back in his bedroom, throws some water on his face, and says, Okay, St. Clair, let's uh, see if we can save this, save the army. That night, he starts having ever he puts out a no-noise ordinance. No talking. And they just start funneling all of the stuff into the lake, onto the boats, under complete silence. And they work at this all night long. And while this is going on, he periodically has his cannons open fire to make it look like they're still, you know, trying to hold people back. They have gunfire go off. They intentionally have lanterns put at one end of the fort where they all have all their men uh, walking back and forth like they're patrolling the gate. Meanwhile, every other person is trying to get their stuff on the boat and they're starting to have everybody head down the river and they're having other people take to the roads and they're sending people in two separate directions. And they do this all night long. And by dawn, as the light comes up, Burgoyne looks out in his telescope and he sees the ruse at this point. But by then, they'd already gotten almost all of the army out. They hadn't gotten all of the supplies. But St. Clair is able to save nearly every single soldier, and they're able to retreat and get to safety. Now, Burgoyne's men are going to swoop right in, and it's kind of a victory. Hey, we took Ticonderoga without even having to fire any shots. Burgoyne sends his forces to chase after them, hoping that you know it'll become a rout and they can start hosing them down. But they are retreating in good order, and they just start put up this firm resistance. And Burgoyne's men, they just start fighting, 
And the Americans end up losing twice as many men in a lot of these skirmishes, but they refuse to retreat. They just hold the line and keep letting the people retreat. So a lot of the British officers are starting to think to themselves, hey, we just got this fort, but maybe this army isn't going to be as easy to destroy as we thought. So the main force of St. Clair's army retreats through the New Hampshire grants, which we would call today Vermont, and St. Clair begins sending out petitions asking the states to rally the militia for support and also get as much livestock and supplies as you can delivered to Fort Edward on the Hudson River because the American armies are going to need to regroup there. Now, even though this was a victory for Burgoyne, by the end of it, due to desertion, sickness, and people getting killed, he's lost 1,500 men. We said that he had eight. He sends 900 with St. Ledger. So he has roughly 7,000 men. So losing 1,500 men out of 7,000 is actually a pretty bad victory. For just a few skirmishes, no full-on battles. Was it Hannibal that said another victory like that and I won't have an army, something like that? This is kind of like that. He's just had this huge victory, but he's lost nearly a quarter of his army. So he ends up leaving 400 men to garrison Crown Point and 900 to defend Ticonderoga, and he begins marching south. And I guess we'll put a pin in him and come back to him later because, remember, we said that there are several forces and expeditions going on, so we need to cut back over and talk about Colonel Barry St. Ledger. Yeah, because at the same time, this is literally going on uh, within a month, in mid-June, St. Ledger is starting his expedition. And as I mentioned before, St. Ledger's goal is to travel from Oswego to Fort Stanwix and then travel down the Mohawk Valley. And his expedition's going to rely on a lot of the familiar faces that we've seen before, mainly, predominantly, Iroquois Indian allies. But before I even get to St. Ledger, I need to talk about what's happening up before St. Ledger starts his expedition. So you ready, Caleb? Let's hear it. You remember Joseph Brandt. Joseph Brandt has just gone to England, and then he's come back, and he's all in on the British. He's a total Anglophile, as is Molly Brandt, who is the widow of William Johnson, who used to be the superintendent for Indian Affairs, as we've mentioned in every single episode for the last year, it seems like. Joseph Brandt doesn't speak for all the Iroquois people. We also talked last time about a guy named Joseph Lewis Cook, who's an African-slash-Native-American-adopted Mohawk leader who has joined the Patriot cause. So with the British forces massing, they are reaching out for Native American allies. So in 1776, a council is held at Onondaga, and the Six Nations gather together to try and see what's going on. Brandt is really pitching that they all side in with the British, And other older sachems are saying, no, we need to stay out of this. But younger warriors are saying that, you know, we want to support this people. We want to support that people. The Oneida and the Tuscarora are leaning towards the Americans. Going all the way back to, I think, our second episode, Caleb, we talked about how councils and nations, whenever they make a decision, they want to make sure that it's totally unanimous, right? That's right. Even if they don't agree with it. They will either change their vote or they will just abstain. That way, it you know it looks like, and, and even the Democrats and the Republicans do this sometimes. It, they don't want to necessarily vote against something that their party wants, so they'll just not show up to vote. But the council and nations are deadlocked, and eventually they come to the realization that, you know what, each one of the six nations needs to follow their own path. They need to do what they think is right. 
And so they end the conference, they extinguish the council fire and say, all right, everybody do what's best for yourselves. But little do they realize that for the first time in hundreds of years, this is going to be the last time for a while that all of them are going to be together as united brothers and sisters. It's debatable how long this council fire had continuously been going on year after year, Caleb. Uh, Some people said, you know, based on our dating, and we don't know, but some people say from the 1100s, others say the 1400s, and then there's the other people that think, at minimum, at least from the late 1500s. Either way, that's a long time. Uh, We're looking at 300 years short at, at the short end of the spectrum and up to, you know, 600 years. In comparison to American history, there is no comparison. But they don't realize that the Confederacy is starting to break down. Back up in Canada, Guy Johnson, who's the superintendent of Indian Affairs, is rallying men from all indigenous nations to join the British and help put down this colonial rebellion. And he hopes that together they can take Fort Stanwix. There's another man named John Butler, and he was a resident of the Mohawk Valley and also a huge loyalist with a boy crush on good old King George. And he had grown up as a neighbor to William Johnson and had fled to Canada with a bunch of other loyalists. He knew several of the Iroquois languages and was an experienced ranger. He had fought in the French and Indian War, and now he's out to fight again. So in the summer of 1777, he travels to Fort Niagara and starts recruiting Cayuga and Seneca people for his expedition. In June, two native people came to John Butler named Adisaranari and John Hare. And they had a group chat talking about, hey, we've got an expedition coming up and we want to take Fort Stanwix. So why don't you grab about 10 select Cayuga men and head over there and see if you can capture four or five people and bring them back. In the weeks that followed at Niagara, it's all a buzz, and people start gathering there, all kinds of young men who were in favor of the war. Later in the month, Old Smoke shows up. We've mentioned him a bit before, right, Caleb? Right. He's telling the young men to stay out of this conflict. It seems like the age-old thing. Old men tell the young men to stay away from war, and the young men just hear the great old stories, and they want to go and put a notch in their belt, too. And so through peer pressure being put upon him, Old Smoke gives in and says, all right, if you guys are going to go, well, you need somebody to go with you. And so they declare that Old Smoke is going to be one of their war chiefs, along with another guy named Corn Planter, who is Gayasuta's nephew. So they decide to head east from Niagara, and they're gathering men as they go, and they camp at Arondequoit Bay. That is just outside of Rochester, New York, and it's the same place where Denonville landed in his war against the Seneca about 100 years before this. They're massing there, and then they're going to carry on to head towards Oswego, east along Lake Ontario. There is one young man who joins this war party of note, Caleb, and his name was Atiani. He was better known as Red Jacket Andrew. Yep, and in a future episode, we'll discuss how he gets this name. But Red Jacket was a Seneca man born in the Wolf Clan. He grew up around Cuca Lake. And at this massive gathering, he admitted later on that he didn't even know why he was there. His peers had encouraged him to come along. Even at 18, he was very suspicious of the British. He thought that they only wanted to use them as a disposable fighting force. And he was extra suspicious of Joseph Brandt because of his relationship with the English. And let's just say that the two of them are not really going to get along in the future. Now, when he says he didn't even know why he was there, I think that we can put 
ourselves at this young college age and you know you go off on some road trip why are you here i don't know some people some people i met they said they were driving down to virginia for the weekend so i got in the car and went and that's how he winds up being a soldier in this war so barry st ledger departs canada and he heads to carlton island which is just at the mouth of the st lawrence river in lake ontario and that's like his staging area before he totally sails down there he learns that Odisseronary and his Cayuga scouts were successful in their little raid at Fort Stanwix, and they get some prisoners. But when St. Ledger hears about the information that they've gotten from these interrogations, he doesn't believe it. Because what they tell him is that Fort Stanwix is garrisoned by over 600 men, and that we've been expecting you, and that we know your troop strength and the route you're going to take. St. Ledger threatens to torture the men for lying. They knew where the general was going to land. They knew what his plans were for Fort Stanwix. He demands to know how they know this information. And they just reply to Andrew that it was common knowledge. Everybody knows this. St. Ledger left Carlton Island and made it to Oswego. So he meets up with Joseph Brandt and John Johnson, William Johnson's son. One person who did not come along was Guy Johnson. Why not? Well, he said that he was not feeling too good. He had a tummy ache. And in addition to that, he and Brant had had a, we'll call it a falling out. You see, Guy was becoming a drunk. And in Canada, when Brant visited, they got into a heated argument. And Brant lost all respect for him. And so their relationship soured and they never really made amends after that. Present with All these people gathering are hundreds of Iroquois from Western New York, mostly Seneca. And I'm going to list a name of a few people here, and this is pretty much a who's who. We already mentioned Corn Planter. There's another guy named Gusinge, who's a Seneca. Gisu Guato, Galto, Black Snake, who this guy lives forever. I think we've mentioned him before. Cornstalk, Sangarata, John Hare, who was on the expedition to help capture the men at Stanwix. And, of course, Red Jacket. We have members from all six nations here, plus people from the Ottawa Nation, Mississaugas, Hurons, Chippewas, and other Algonquins. No Winnebagos. Sorry, Caleb. Now, I haven't mentioned what's going on at Fort Stanwix yet. The commander there is a man named Peter Gansevoort. And he's descended from German Palatines. We've talked about these people before, too, that were allowed to settle here after a war in Europe. The uh, Mohawk invited them to come settle there as refugees. And now we're a few generations removed, and a lot of them have built very good relationships with their local native neighbors. And Gansevoort was good friends with an Oneida warrior named Aniero, who also had an English name called Thomas Spencer. Uh, Tom Spencer was the son of a Presbyterian minister and an Oneida woman. And Gansevoort had called him here because he had a mission for him. But Gansevoort told him, you know, I'm really fearful for your safety. Please don't do this if there's any chance that you're going to be caught or killed. And Spencer told him, "Eh, it'll be no problem. You've got no reason to fear. He was half Native American. He totally blended in and he, he lived with the Oneida people. So he totally was already dressed like one of them. So with that, he heads out west towards the encampment at Oswego. Now, meanwhile, at Oswego... Many people are starting to get upset and they're complaining to the British officers because supplies are running out. 
the trade goods and the pay to the Native American warriors was garbage. Uh, people were walking all the way there trying to trade something, and then there would be nothing to trade them. And Joseph Brandt was also upset, uh, but he was playing everything cool. He was kind of being the soothsayer to make sure the people did not get up and leave. Even though he was mad himself, he'd be complaining to leaders in the village, and then he'd walk out the door, and he'd say, come on, guys, this isn't that bad. There'll be more coming soon. And then he'd walk back inside and grumble some more. Some of the leaders there are telling the native people, saying, the king is rich, and he will supply you with all weapons and goods. All you guys have to do is scout for us. And, you know, you guys are really renowned warriors. We just want to use you for intimidation tactics. You don't need to engage in any combat. But if you want, you know, afterwards, John Butler said that when Fort Stanwix falls, you know, feel free to rampage through the Mohawk Valley and do whatever you want. And you know what? The king will even pay 20 pounds of trade goods for each scalp you gather. So they're promising them the world. They're telling them, you guys just come and be our scouts. You don't even have to fight, and you will get all the plunder from the battle. So that sounds pretty good. I think I can see why Red Jacket wants to be here. But Red Jacket, he's kind of showing some intelligence, even though he's, did you say he's 18 or 19 at this point, Andrew? Uh, it's debatable, but probably 18. So he's still kind of being leery. I think he's probably seen in the past when the when the British promise something, uh, take it and cut it down to one one hundredth, and maybe you'll be lucky if you get that. So as John Butler is standing around giving all these speeches, one tall guy stands up and begins to leave and just walk away from the group. And it was who we had mentioned in our previous episode, Lewis Cook, who is the African now adopted Mohawk leader. As he's walking away from the crowd. He joins up with a companion he's just met up with, and it was the Oneida man, Thomas Spencer. Together, they exchanged a few words in the camp, and Spencer gave a message to Lewis to head over to Fort Stanwix and tell Gansevoort everything that's going on there. Spencer says, I'm going to stay behind and blend in. I'm going to dress in war paint, and I'm going to travel with the British forces to try and glean as much information as I can. And then at some point, I'll break off and meet up with you at Stanwix. Now, Andrew, at this point, something kind of cool happens. The meeting is just about to come to a close where everybody starts to turn away and go their separate ways. And they start to hear the sound coming from the distance. And it gets louder and louder. Was it velociraptors? They look up, Andrew, and the largest flock of crows anyone had ever seen in their lives blotted out the sky as they flew overhead. Now, uh, in Game of Thrones, they always say black wings, black words, whenever the ravens or the, the crows fly over. And a lot of the Iroquois took this as a bad omen. What else are crows known for? Eating flesh off corpses. So a lot of people, all of a sudden, they're, they're all there cheering, and then all of a sudden, this omen happens. And a lot of people are starting to get second thoughts. St. Ledger, meanwhile, hears that Ticonderoga has fallen. And he thinks to himself, you know, we really need to speed things up here because I want to get to Albany before Burgoyne. Then I can get some credit here and uh, everybody will look up to me and uh, I'll be the hero. So his plan is to go overland with a flying column. Remember how f well flying columns <laughs> were, Caleb? And he figures that everybody else will travel by water to go up from Oswego to Three Rivers and then to Oneida Lake and then to Wood Creek to get to the Oneida Carry where Fort Stanwix sits. By the way, Fort Stanwix was built in a swamp. 
and they built it there because it was like the only piece of dry ground between these two places of water. So St. Ledger's got a, it's not a huge force, but it's probably enough to do the job. He's got at least 200 British regulars, 80 Hessians, another 350 loyalists, a company of rangers led by uh, Butler, who we mentioned before, about 100 Canadian laborers to do all the dirty work, and then on top of that, about 800 different native peoples. He's got two six-pound artillery pieces, two three-pounders, and four small mortars. And he says to himself, this is going to be totally adequate for taking a small, stinking, dilapidated fort with only like 60 defenders, because he still thought that the POWs he had were totally lying about the fort strength. Now, back at Fort Stanwick's Gansevoort, uh, he knows that this British force is coming somewhere from the west and that they'll be here at some point. He's, he's getting everything ready. He's beefing up the western walls. He knows that Fort Ticonderoga is so strong and, and so well fortified that it'll never fall. And in fact, there are letters being written down to George Washington telling him, don't worry about the northern campaign. Fort Ticonderoga will never fall. It's the best defended, uh, best supplied force. And uh, just just know that we'll hold them. We'll hold our ground in the north. And then meanwhile, there's this guy running up out of breath into the fort. Oh, oh, oh. Yes, what is it? Ticonderoga. It's fallen. What? It's fallen, sir. Uh... They uh, they set up some cannon on the hill, and we had to retreat. So you didn't even fight? All this time they were saying that they were hold their ground, and this was going to be the line drawn in the sand, and he's just heard that the entire army for the northern campaign is just turn tail and run, and half of them are, di- are retreating in Vermont. Half of them are heading down south towards New York City. And uh, so now he has to worry about Burgoyne coming from the east and Ledger coming from the west. But Gansevoort does get some good news around this time. An Oneida man shows up with a wampum peace belt from the leaders of Kananawaga. That's an Oneida town. And they tell the Americans that they want to stay at peace with the colonials. And although they're not officially declaring war against the British, they are helping the Americans, I would not say indirectly, because they are directly helping them. They're giving them intelligence. They start telling him what St. Ledger's troop movements are. And they also say that they're going to send messengers to the other Americans in the Mohawk Valley about what's going on. And then things really look up for Gansevoort because on the same day, on July 30th, another 200 troops from New England and New York arrive to reinforce him at the fort. A couple days later in the morning on August 2nd, Thomas Spencer makes it to Fort Stanwix and informs Gansevoort of the status of the army as they slowly approach. And Spencer says, All right. I'm going to head east for German flats, and I'm going to let General Herkimer know what's going on. So best of luck, good friend. Final total, once we're going to get things going, Caleb, inside Fort Stanwix, there's about 850 souls. Now, we've both been to Fort Stanwix, right, Caleb? Yeah, I actually was up in the Adirondacks with my wife just a couple weeks ago, so I made sure that I stopped by on my way back to the Finger Lakes. Now, Fort Stanwix is... I mean, it's a recreation there that they have now, but they did it exactly as it was. And it is on the exact same spot in it. There's actually uh, the original fireplace. Did you see that in in the general's quarters? Mm -hmm. So it's built for specs. Yes. And it's a rather large complex. However, it was not designed to hold 850 souls. Being in it, Andrew, I felt like... 
as far as rooms, if you were going to try to board people indoors, 100 people might have been comfortable. To actually have enough people to man it as far as fighting, maybe 500 would be kind of what I would think ideal for being in there. Yeah. But how many men does he have? 850 men and women. So it's pretty tight. Pretty tight. And, you know, I can see where they could stack people. They had underground tunnels that ran into the bastions and things like that. So you, you could, and everybody else would have to sleep in tents in the main courtyard. But yeah, that sounds really cramped and uncomfortable. So Gansevoort, being the good high school sports coach that he is, gathers everybody together. And after giving a rousing speech, he, he gets everybody to put their hands in. And he says, by the grace of God, we are going to defend this place. And Gansefort was dead serious, as we will see. St. Ledger leads his host of troops in, and he wants everything to be for show as well. He tells his troops to shave and comb their hair and wash their clothes, and he has the band play tunes, and so they march in playing these upbeat songs, marching in formation, and they all stand out front, and then they have their 1,500 native allies stand there and do their war chant to scream and try and intimidate everybody. And then St. Ledger, being a proper British gentleman, sends a message in for surrender, saying that, you know, we have a vastly superior force, and da-da-da-da-da. And what does Gansevoort say, Caleb? He doesn't even open the letter. He just says, I refuse, let's fight. I love Gansevoort, and as we see more in the future, I'll tell you why. Meanwhile, to the east in the Mohawk Valley, Molly Brandt is there, and we remember that this is Joseph Brandt's older sister, William Johnson's widow, and she is running a little intelligence ring herself because she starts sending messengers out to her brother, informing him that General Nicholas Herkimer is on his way with a relief force from Fort Dayton. And she gave very specifics to his movement. And she said, by the way, they're going to be passing via the village of Oriska. This is where we're going to leave things for today. Next time, we'll be talking about how the siege of Fort Stanwix progresses and also the battle at Oriskany. Once again, we remind you guys that you can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at Iroquois History. Or check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. We're always open to messages and emails. So thank you, everyone, and we will see you next time. <laughs>